Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week, we are exploring an Hercule Poirot short story, and not just any Poirot short story, the very first Poirot short story ever written. you? This is the affair at the Victory Ball. <laughs> This is very exciting. Very exciting. It was published after, of course, um, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. So it's published on March 7th, 1923 in our old fun, The Sketch. Love The Sketch. Right. In collection form, it gets a little bit weirder. Uh, as longtime listeners know, uh, we covered everything that's in Poirot Investigates, which was the first major Poirot short story collection. This is not actually published in collection form until much later. First, it's in the U.S. in 1951 in The Underdog and Other Stories. And then in the U.K., it's not published until Poirot's early cases all the way in September 1974. I mean, it's curious that these short stories, which are perfectly good Poirot short stories, these early ones collected in that edition, weren't published before. I believe that they were published in 1974 because that was when Christie, understandably, the octogenarian that she was, had slowed down and they were looking for something to publish. So they said, oh, let's collect those Poirot short stories that we actually hadn't gotten around to collecting before yeah, and it just publish is, that. It's an oddity because, and we'll get to this, A, it's the first Poirot short story, and B, it really takes up a lot of the sort of clue concerns that haunt so much of Christie. Yes, which I know was of immense enjoyment to both of us. Yes. All right, let's talk about our victims here because we have two in this short story. First up is Viscount Cronshaw, who is a wealthy, handsome 25-year-old, stabbed in the heart while dressed as Harlequin. Oh, no. Oh, yes. We've got so much Harlequinade to talk about, Catherine, in this story. I know. I know. You're so excited. You're pulling out previous notes. (laughs) We have listeners right now who are thinking back and are thinking, oh, dear. Listeners who want to bone up on the history of Harlequin as a stock character and the Harlequinade in general may want to go back to our episode, uh, the first mysterious Mr. Quinn story, The Coming of Mr. Quinn. Kember goes on for about, you know, I would say like 73 minutes talking <laughs> about the history of the Harlequinade and the Comedia <laughs> dell'arte. So, you know, in case anybody is very curious... There's yes. a deep dive in our archive. Yes, so be warned. So he was dressed as Harlequin, attending the titular victory ball, was celebrating the victory of World War One. given that we're in 1923. Well, it's mentioned that the term had been uh, had come into overuse and that plenty of them were, you know, sort of middling affairs that were probably at some local hall. and nobody Just a ball, was, yeah. Well, or not even a ball, but, you know, like... Right, a, just a party. <laughs> just a party. This is a, this is a, a fancy dress ball. And this is like a victory ball to see and be seen at, right? Like, right. this is a big deal. Absolutely. As is well known by our second victim, Miss um, Coco Courtenay, She is a young actress, and she is dressed as Columbine at the ball. She may or may not have been engaged to Lord Cronshaw. It's a little unclear. She's certainly involved with him. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she's found dead the next day in her flat from an overdose of cocaine. 
I actually think it's fairly hinted that they're not engaged. I, I think they're having a dalliance. Yeah. I don't know if Miss Coco Courtenay ever actually thought that she was going to marry Cronshaw, but they are having a good time together. They're, well, they're serious. Well, we'll get into this. They're seriously <laughs> enough involved that he is sort of making some decisions for her. Yes, this is true. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think their relationship is serious and, and potentially even long term. I just right. think that if they both hadn't died <laughs> the night of the victory ball, perhaps she would have eventually become his long term mistress mm-hmm. was my sense. I, I don't think she was ever going to become his wife. Marriage material. Yeah. A morganatic marriage, if you will. Sure. And this is where it's worth noting that this short story actually has a real-world antecedent. So we don't often get to reference this book, Stranger Than Fiction, Agatha Christie's True Crime Inspirations by Mike Holgate. And it's a slim volume that goes through some of the true crimes that may have inspired Christie in writing certain novels and short stories. And there's pretty much no question that this story was ripped from the headlines because there was an infamous death following a victory ball in November of 1918. So that is right after the end of World War I and coincidentally exactly 100 years ago. And at this victory ball at the Royal Albert Hall, so this was a very big deal, very big to do, just like the victory ball in Christie's short story, there was a famous actress and her name was Billy Carlton. And she was, as Holgate says, a member of a fast-living set. And she died after that ball from an overdose of cocaine. She was found dead in her bed after the party, exactly as our actress is found in Christie's short story. So considering that the short story was just five years after that infamous death, I think a contemporary reader would make the connection quite easily. And what's really interesting is that Billy Carlton's drug suppliers turned out to be Chinese. And this scandal contributed in great part to the quote-unquote yellow peril phenomenon by which Westerners perceived people from the East, and in particular men, as being dangerous and preying upon young women and looking to corrupt them in all the ways you can imagine. I mean when I use the word corrupt. And we've come across this notion of the yellow peril and other Christie stories, specifically The Lost Mine, which was also a Poirot short story, and even The Adventure of the Western Star, likewise a Poirot. But as we'll see in just a second, she took that element out of her version of events. So thankfully, we have no non-Western characters in this story. Our cast of suspects is made up entirely of Westerners. And with that, let's talk about our suspects. It has to be one of the other members of this group of friends who went together to the Victory Ball dressed up as the Commedia dell'arte character. So first up, we have the Honorable Eustace Beltrain, who is Viscount Cronshaw's uncle, and he is dressed up as Punchinello. And he, in fact, becomes the next Viscount after his nephew's death. Right. And then we have Mrs. Malaby, who's a pretty American widow. And she's dressed up as Pulcinella, who is the counterpart to Beltrain's costume. Right. And Punchinello and Pulcinella are kind of the body characters. Mm -hmm. They're depicted as a bit grotesque, potentially overweight, kind of bulbous. Right. Then we have Chris Davidson, who is a good-looking young actor. 
and he is dressed as Piero. Who was our last suspect, Catherine? Chris Davidson's wife, Mrs. Davidson, who is dressed as Pierrette, who again is the female counterpart to Piero. And I think that in the canon of the Commedia, Piero is also a paramour of Columbine who is sorted by Harlequin. In terms of romantic intrigues, yes. I think that Piero is kind of a... He's a sad clown. Yeah. Piero and Pierrette, they have tragic kind of undertones to them, right? Right. And the costuming of these characters is clever because those attributes of the Commedia dell'arte characters are definitely reflected in who these people are. But we will get there in the world as it appears to be, which is where we are right now. So we open up on Poirot and Hastings in Poirot's flat, where Hastings has now taken up residence after... The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Styles is actually referenced right at the beginning of the story, which is very exciting. And we also find out that Poirot was the head of all forces, um, police forces in Belgium, which I'll be honest, I don't know that we get elsewhere. I don't know that it's ever referenced like that elsewhere. Yeah, within this paragraph, she gives away a lot of concrete information that I think she often shied away from giving in other Poirot stories and certainly the novels. Like, Mm -hmm. it's usually a bit vague, right, as to Poirot and Hastings' living situation and origins, but we get here that Poirot was formerly chief of the Belgian force. We also get that Hastings was definitely wounded on the Somme and invalided out of the army. We did know that he had been wounded in the and Great War. And he was War. forced to have a desk job because that's where we meet him in styles. Exactly, but that's even a little bit more specific. And then we also know that for sure he took up living quarters with Poirot pretty soon after that, and that Poirot himself from Styles has decided to set himself up in London because he got some notoriety out of that case, deservedly so, and uh, become the successful, fancy private detective that we know him to be. Right. It's a it's a lot of specifics that we rarely get, I think. Yeah, and it's one of those other times where the facade of Hastings actually writing these cases is entirely constructed, where where it's really often vague in terms of Hastings' first-person narration, whether he's actually writing a story the way that Watson so often is in Sherlock Holmes. No, but in this case, he's made it very clear that, well, certain people have suggested that I write this down. It's a little bit like, really, Arthur, who are these certain people? (laughs) No, I know. It's interesting because there was another novel, and I forget which one it is, where it was also made very clear that Hastings was literally writing the story, not just functioning as a first-person narrator, but then other times he really seems to be functioning as a first-person narrator and doing no writing at all. So it's a bit of an inconsistency, I think, within the Christieverse. Yeah, it is. And we open this one, like we open actually a lot of the short stories, frankly, with Hastings reading the newspaper. Yeah. And you know what's funny? I was reading somewhere that that is a common theme, especially among the sketch short stories Mm -hmm. that um, these early short stories that often it just opens up with them in their flat. Hastings reading the newspaper and whatever he remarks on in the newspaper becomes the thing that they investigate. Yeah. I mean, it's a convenient entry point. It's very convenient. Yeah. I like it. It's simple. There's not a lot of fluff and fanfare to these Poirot short stories in particular. She just gets right to it. I appreciate that. I do. So um, Hastings, the thing that he's curious about, and he's very curious about it, is 
a recent scandal involving the most lavish victory ball. Two very high society deaths. Well, I mean, I don't know if you can call Coco high society, but she's at least tabloid fodder. High society deaths surrounding the ball. Um, Poro at this point is much more interested in waxing his mustache with a new pomade. <laughs> he, he really is. <laughs> no, that's literally it's the first like two pages. It's, it's his focus is looking at himself in a mirror while he, mm-hmm. you know, lovingly adds more pomade to his glorious mustache. He has a certain harmless vanity. That's how Hastings characterizes it. (laughs) Right. But so he's less interested in the sort of tabloid story that Hastings is reading about these deaths. That is until who shows up, Kemper? Inspector Jack. (laughs) And right away, it's always a little jarring to me in these short stories. Right away, we get Hastings throwing shade on Jap because Hastings really does not like Jap in these at short all. stories. No. At all. It's always it's always hilarious when you put them up against the Suchet adaptations because you never really think of them as having deep-seated animosity towards each other. But in every one of the short stories, it's palpable. Yeah, it really is. I think a lot of that goes to how charming Philip Jackson is. In his portrayal of Jap, he pulls off Jap's opportunism, which is totally there in the text and even there in the stories where he's using Poirot to help solve his cases with more charm than Jap does on the page. And that's what annoys Hastings on the page. And perhaps the Hastings on the page is a little bit more perceptive about that manipulation than on the screen. But yeah, Hastings says, Poirot had a good opinion of Jap's abilities, though deploring his lamentable lack of method. But I, for my part, considered that the detective's highest talent lay in the gentle art of seeking favors under the guise of conferring them. He's just very indignant on Poirot's behalf immediately. Right. I mean, I suppose it's because they're not being paid. I always assume that in Sherlock Holmes, that Scotland Yard is providing Holmes some sort of consultant speech. <laughs> Lestrade is using Holmes and Watson in the same way that Jap uses Poirot and Hastings. Oh, yeah. But Jap is shameless. Oh, right. He is. And he's and he's very manipulative and playing to Poirot's vanity. And, like, he does a lot of stuff that probably I would have to think Scotland Yard would frown upon a little bit just in order yeah. to get Poirot's help. And honestly, there's a little bit of classism going on in Hastings' attitude toward Jap on the page because oh, Hastings goes yeah. to all the right schools and Jap is very obviously of a much lower social class and Hastings never forgets that. No, but the case that Jap shows up wanting help on is the victory ball case. So Hastings can't even be that mad. Right, it's true. So here's what happened at the victory ball. A group of six society invitees decided to attend the ball dressed as the characters of the Commedia dell'arte, as we listed above. So after dinner at the Victory Ball, Miss Coco Courtney, who had been crying the entire time and just seemingly in a feud with her boyfriend, Lord Cronshaw, she demands to be taken home. And Chris Davidson, who is her friend from the theater, they are actors, after all. Let us reiterate that they are actors. Mm-hmm. Dare I pull out Stefan again? <laughs> this this Christie short story has everything. everything. Yeah. Random newspaper references that turn out to be important. Actors, the Harlequinade. 
Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Hidden nooks and crannies. So Chris Davidson, actor friend of Coco, agrees to take her home. And then he decides it's too big of a hassle to go back to the victory ball. So he goes home as well. And he meets his wife there, who is returning from the ball. And his wife has shocking news. Yeah, because you see, while he was chaperoning Coco home... It turns out that back at the ball, Lord Cronshaw had been absent, and the group had seen him on one of the balconies, and apparently he was just stewing from the aftermath of Coco storming out and the crying at dinner. But he kind of waved them off until finally they get sick of it, so they go look for him. And boy, do they find him. They find him in the private dining room where they'd been earlier in the evening, and he is dead with a dinner knife through the chest. And I had to tell you, Kemper, when it was described sort of as a dinner knife, I was picturing a butter knife. Well, and in the adaptation, which we'll, we'll of course, talk about after we run through the story, it kind of is a butter knife. Yeah, and there's also a point that Poirot makes, try not to spoil anything right now, but Poirot is like, well, it would have taken a lot of force to get that knife in there. Yeah. It's sort of like being stabbed to death by a spoon. Oof. Yeah, that's brutal. It also made me think of that Tommy and Tuppence short story that involved a masked celebration where someone also got stabbed in the chest. Do you remember that? Hidden yeah. behind a curtain? Mm-hmm. Finessing the king. It was very similar. It's that one of those really good adaptations, isn't it? Where they're sitting in like an underground nightclub and like the table yeah. next to them. I think they go to an after party. It's almost like the after party right. to yes. the main event. And at the after party, someone ends up getting stabbed <laughs> behind a curtain. It did make me think of that because she was writing that story in the 20s as well. So. Mm-hmm. Well, worse than getting stabbed in the chest with a butter knife, perhaps. Wait, really? Are you sure? In a way, it's sadder because it's so much more mundane. But Coco Courtenay is found dead in her bed the next day from an overdose of cocaine. Right. Very little information is really present at the inquest. But Jap is more than happy to pass all of it along to Poirot. So we have a few things that were found. Lord Cronshaw had been clutching a green pom-pom. It had fallen off or had been ripped off of the costume of Mrs. Davidson earlier. And she says that it was cut for safekeeping by Cronshaw. Also on his body was a diamond-encrusted case with the diamonds spelling out what else? Coco. Um, that was filled with uh, coca. It was filled with cocaine. Also, and this might be the factor that especially we modern mystery readers or viewers of CSI or any number of other televised crime series in like the last 30-something years would probably immediately note is that at the inquest, it's said that the body was unusually rigid for the time of death, which we kind of already know means one thing. And they're basing the time of death on that time frame between when Cronshaw was seen on the balcony to them finding the body. Right. So we know that something's up already with with the time of death, but we'll get there squarely in a moment with our clues. So Poirot really only has two important questions. He wants to see the ceramic figurine set that the costumes were based on, and he wants to see Mrs. Davidson's costume. He also wants to know if the dining room had any recesses or hidden doorways or such. And again, the dining room is where Lord Cronshaw's body was found. So let's talk about the world as it actually is, because this is a miniature puzzle mystery. And it's a pretty basic one, but in that it's an early one, that's totally fine with us. And Mm -hmm. we love being able to see almost the foundational work being laid here for future puzzle mysteries. Clue number one, Catherine, take it away. Oh, 
Man, Kemper, we, I think that we've been starting every single uh, <laughs> clue number one as this lately. Actors. <laughs> actors. If someone in the Christie novel is an actor, be very, very wary. And we don't just have one actor in the story. We have two. And one of those actors is dead. So what is our deduction? Look at the other actor immediately. I'm proud of myself because I did not remember the solution to this mystery whatsoever when I was reading it. And when I saw that Coco Courtenay and Chris Davidson were actors and then Coco Courtenay died, I was like, oh, Chris Davidson did it. Cool. (laughs) Cool, cool. (laughs) Good to know. I mean, it's a little bit. The actor clue in Christie has the analog in that if you're watching an episode of Law & Order and there's somebody that you recognize... They did it. <laughs> right. The most famous person in the cast did it, which we ran up against in the adaptation of Murder is Easy, where an 80-something Olivia de Havilland stars in it. And you're like, I know that Ms. de Havilland is not bothering to clock in for the day unless no, she is the she murderer. she didn't leave Paris unless she was the yeah. murderess. She's like, I don't lose sight of the Champs-Élysées for just any old gig here, right. fellas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Clue number two, lighting and costumes. Mm -hmm. If someone is wearing a costume, especially one that is covering part of one's face and it's from a distance and there is bad lighting. Remember, we're at this ball. You can make a very obvious assumption as to what is happening. Something is being obfuscated in terms of identity. So the deduction there is that it's almost always the fact that the person in that costume is not actually who they seem to be. In other words, the Harlequin on the balcony was almost certainly not Cronshaw. And I have to say that too was pretty obvious to me as I was well, reading this. I mean, like, think about it. We can reference it in styles. We can reference it in Lord Edward Dies. We could reference it in Witness for the Prosecution. I mean, yeah. the list yeah. goes on and on and on and on. And then there were none, too. And then there were none, yeah. Clue number three, we already touched on this, but um, it's a timing clue. And if you're given a time frame often in these Christie stories, watch out. Because you should look on the sides, the time frame, because often is not accurate. And here we are told that by virtue of the fact that the body has rigor mortis setting in. I mean, it's not called rigor mortis here, but I mean, that is what's happening. And that doesn't fit with when he was supposed to have been killed. And that, that's a real clue. It's um, based on scientific evidence and not witness testimony. And it's also, we've mentioned this time and time again, you can't judge things based on one sense in most of the Christie stories. And the deduction here is, of course, that the medical science was right, not the eyewitnesses. The body had started to develop rigor mortis because he'd been dead much longer than the eyewitness testimony would suggest. I think that's a a smarter way of getting at the heart of that Christie trope, which is it's not even that it has to do with one sense versus two senses, but we should never trust, we should never blindly trust evidence being presented through the filter of a subjective human who is seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or feeling something and just might be getting it wrong. So if there is objective medical evidence, that's always to be paid attention to and weighed probably as more significant than human witness testimony. 
Right. And yeah, I totally agree with you that that clue is a lot more obvious to, I think, a modern 21st century reader steeped in crime procedurals than it probably was a reader of the sketch in 1923. Agreed. Let's get to our resolution here. Poirot groups everyone together for quite a denouement. He throws a small little supper soiree with costumed actors that he hires Mm -hmm. to appear behind a scrim on which light is thrown. It actually made me think of Hamlet (laughs) immediately. Mm -hmm. That's exactly, you know, the play is a thing. Yeah, it's a deliberate reference, I think. I would hope, well, I would hope so because (laughs) you, you can't see it as anything besides that, right? Putting on a little play within a story to show up the guilt of one of the spectators of the play. We're in Hamlet territory. And of course, when Claudius asks Hamlet for the title of that play within a play, he responds with The Mousetrap. And I have to admit, I have seen The Mousetrap in London. And while I am not the biggest fan of it in comparison to other Christie creations, I have a newfound appreciation for the brilliance of the title after making this connection thanks to the affair of the Victory Ball. So he makes sure all of the suspects who we mentioned and Jap watch as these hired actors parade behind the scrim in their Commedia dell'arte costumes, which these spectators see in silhouette. It's all very dramatic. No one really sees what the point of this show is until Poirot asks how many actors there were. And of course, everyone agrees that there are six. But wait, again, don't trust uh, eyewitness testimony here. There were actually only five actors because Mm. the actor wearing the Piero costume is the same actor who was wearing the Harlequin costume. Yeah. And as Poirot says, and this becomes such a fundamental Christie trope, to see things with your eyes, as they say, is not always to see the truth. One must see with the eyes of the mind. One must employ the little cells of gray. (laughs) That seems to be a proto-phrasing of the little gray cells also, interestingly. Right. And Poirot demonstrates when he has Piero come out and then writes Christie, With a swift movement, the man divested himself of his loose Piero garb. There in the limelight stood glittering Harlequin. And that's when Chris Davidson loses it and gets arrested. And the point there is that Poirot realized someone was impersonating Lord Cronshaw as Harlequin later in the night when Cronshaw was already dead. And the only people who could have done it based on the costumes were Pierrot and Pierrette. And he knows from the manner in which Cronshaw was killed via this butter knife to the heart that it had to be a man who did it. Perhaps that's a little bit of a stuck-in-its-time element of this story. But that is why he fast on Piero because even though we have Punchinello and Pulcinella, their costumes were too elaborate to allow them to affect the quick switcheroo that was required on the night of the Victory Ball. The reason that Poirot wanted to see Chris Davidson's wife's costume was to see if, in fact, the green pom-pom was torn off. It wasn't. It was cut off with scissors. It had um, clean threads. Which uh, she had done only because her husband was missing a green pom-pom. Keep in mind that they're essentially playing the male and female version of the same character. Right. So their costumes both involve green pom-poms. Right. And her husband's was missing because of the struggle with Lord Cronshaw from when he had stabbed him immediately after dinner, stashed the body, drove Coco back, then came back moved the body out of the alcove, posed as Crancha as the Harlequin on the balcony, and then snuck out home again. It's a lot of driving for him. That was a busy night. 
Yeah. <laughs> that was a busy night. So Coco was most likely killed by being encouraged to take too much cocaine because what is the motive here? Well, Lord Cronshaw discovered that Coco's cocaine addiction was being fed by Chris Davidson, who was a drug dealer. Lord Cronshaw threatened to expose Chris Davidson and Chris Davidson knew he had to kill him. And that killing Coco would be helpful too, to uh, just hush up the whole thing and move along. Yeah, simple as that. Simple as that. It's all very peril at end house, actually. Lots of cocaine-addled desperados. Yeah, except with a lot more costuming. (laughs) With a lot more costuming. Pretty simple explanation, even if it was a convoluted method. Yeah, I have two things I just want to add about the original text before we move on to the adaptation. I thought it was interesting how Poirot, when he's asking Jap to tell him a little bit about Cronshaw, he asks for his his dossier, and then he says, I should say his bio, bioscope. No, how do you call it? Biograph? And he's just a lot more Frenchy in this story than he is in a lot of the later novels. And I've talked about that before, how Poirot gets less Frenchified as the novels go on. And you know what? You could argue that he's living in the UK, so his English is getting better. Uh, excuse me. He's from Belgium. Sure, but he speaks French, which is why I'm talking about Frenchifying. Fine. (laughs) The language he's speaking is French. It is, except (laughs) I would think that to Frenchify him, he would still consider that perhaps not the the correct verbiage. His his dialogue is being Frenchified. His dialogue was Frenchified a lot more in the earlier novels and stories. And like I said, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for that, that his English just got better because he's been living there. But I also kind of think Christy just got tired of doing it because it was annoying. Right. I mean, and also there are like, (laughs) it sort of becomes later a lot of we mon ami kind of snippets. Throw away. It's like throw away. Throw away Frenchification of language. Yeah. So there's that. And then I also just love the fact that after his big reveal, he does this play, the play, and we know it's Chris Davidson. He holds a supper for everyone else. Like, he reveals who the murderer is, but there's still a little party afterward. I just thought that was really funny. He's just like, oh, let's have a cozy supper. Yeah, you'd be like, who would want to eat after that? Right. Presumably, Mrs. Davidson was not at that supper. I mean, one would assume that she'd be taken in as an accomplice, you would think. (laughs) But uh, that's left unclear. That is left unclear. And that is actually transitioning into the adaptation. That is a difference I noticed in the adaptation, which does complicate the puzzle mystery a little bit just to elongate it for 50 minutes. But Chris Davidson is actually the one who cuts the pom-pom off of his wife's costume to incriminate her if need be and save his own skin, which Poirot brings up at the end of the story to try to get Mrs. Davidson to turn over her husband, but she refuses. Well, I mean, it's also, it's a possibility, sort of, in the short story. I mean, it's, you pretty much are meant to think that she did it herself. You are. No, you definitely are, because I thought that, too. I thought that, too, that she did it in the story. But they really make the decision in the adaptation to make him pretty awful. And then, and this is where I actually liked the adaptation a lot, but we're starting off on the weakest moment because what happens when Mrs. Davidson won't tell on her husband is that Poro throws the Harlequin figurine at Chris Davidson and he catches it with his left hand. And then the pretty American widow who is was dressed up as Pulcinella and had seen him on the balcony writing in a notebook realizes... Madame Malaby, with which hand did you see Harlequin writing? 
Oh my God, Cronshaw was right-handed. Christopher Ian Davidson, I arrest you for the murders of Viscount Cronshaw and Miss Coco Courtney. Ugh, come on, a right versus left-handed clue is way too basic for the Suchet series, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not not great. But, you know, the rest of the episode. It's wonderful. Yeah, it is. They change various things, right? Like yeah. Poirot and Hastings go to the party. They have their usual problem. How do we get Poirot into this story earlier and not have it all be, in retrospect, having to tell him what happened? And I think it's handled really well because, I mean, Poirot literally says that he is rearranging his stamp collection. Well, unfortunately, I have to rearrange my stamps in order of size. When Hastings reminds him that he promised that he would go with him to the victory ball, because Hastings is all excited. And I did appreciate this, because then we get Hastings dressed up uh, for the ball, and he dresses up as... Did you recognize who he was? No. I actually didn't either. I had to look it up. But it ended up being a character who we've talked about on this podcast before. He, based on the quote that he gives when Poirot sees him, They seek him here, they seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Oh, he's the Scarlet Pimpernel? He's the Scarlet... So here... But here's the funny thing. He's not actually the Scarlet Pimpernel. He is Sir Percy Blakeney, the Scarlet Pimpernel's mild-mannered kind of loser alter ego, which is kind of funny that Hastings, of course, is dressing up as kind of the worst half of the Scarlet Pimpernel. What do you think, Poirot? Hastings, you look... incomparable. Oh, Oh, that's really sad. I also am slightly embarrassed that I actually knew that that. from the quote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we mentioned the Scarlet Pimpernel in another Tommy and Tuppence story, the Sunningdale mystery, which we actually mentioned in our last episode, too. Odd to be mentioning the Sunningdale mystery back to back because the detective series that was imitated was The Old Man in the Corner, created by Baroness Ortsy, who also created the Scarlet Pimpernel. Right. So, right. But that was a good moment. Also, Poirot refuses to dress up in costume. I still don't think they'll let you in. I thought I made it clear. The victory ball is a costume, dude. Hercule Poirot does not wear costumes. Everybody does. The whole idea is to go with someone famous. Precisely. Oh. I see Although, you know, I do have to say, we've actually seen Poirot dress up before. So it's actually not out of the realm of possibility that... What one is it where he has to dress up as like a, a candyman? Yeah, but that, that's the one where he becomes... He's like a cat burglar. Yeah. I think it's the Veiled Lady. <laughs> yeah, but he's doing that for a case. He's not doing that recreationally. Right. Fair <laughs> enough. You know, because this is an early episode, this is from the third season slash series, we get a lot of comedic hijinks and additions to the story. And there were a lot of just little moments that I really appreciated. There was a lot of paparazzi just sort of because these are actors involved and they're more radio actors rather than stage actors in this adaptation. But um, at one point, someone asked, Inspector Jack, any comment to my Is it true? Is it true Hercule Poirot is the killer? Then there's also a newspaper photo that they take of Poirot and Hastings. Murderer eludes famous detective. Idiot. It's a very good photo of Captain Hastings. Indeed it is, Miss Lemon. I'm sure no one will think less of you. Seen the paper, Poirot? Jolly good photo of me. Oh, you've seen it. I'll go and sort the letters. I wouldn't take it to heart if I were you. 
I always love a good Hastings for once getting a, a bit of comeuppance. Well, um, I would also note that um, our murderer later would go on to play Inspector Lindley. <laughs> Nathaniel Parker, I think. Nathaniel Parker, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the fact that, uh, yeah, he can be our murderer in a early Poirot and then go on and play Inspector Lindley later. <laughs> the radio stuff was interesting because it was atmospheric. It added to the 30s period of the series, but it made that denouement awkward even beyond the right hand left hand stuff because no one who was listening to the radio show that Poirot put on could see what he was doing and the key there is what those costumes look like and what's actually visually possible I don't know I just thought that was a little awkward but it's a quibble I think Miss Lemon didn't have very much to do in this no just always a disappointment yes I agree But yeah, a charming story and a charming episode. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, that is the affair at the Victory Ball. Join us next week for more Hercule Poirot because we will be covering Evil Under the Sun. And that is the third Poirot in a row that we will be doing. And then after that, we are moving into uncharted territory here because it is not going to be Poirot all the time. We're going to see the rise of Marple at long last. We're going to see some Marple, but although we'll be back to Poirot in like two books. Yeah, no. He he reappears pretty quickly. I just don't think we ever are going to get more than two Poirots in a row anymore. No, we're never going to get the uh, string that we have had. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, was actually, I mean, Catherine clearly enjoyed the heck out of it and I more than made my peace with it ultimately. Well and for a long time we were doing so many short story episodes that we were bringing Poirot into uh, our listeners ears almost every week. Well that's I'm actually excited because we're getting off of the Poirot novels a bit I'm excited to go back to some of these Poirot short stories as we are starting to do with this one being the very first one published. There are many of them to cover. So have no fear. We have so much more Poirot to do. And I'm also excited because we're going to get a lot of standalone mystery puzzles. And we haven't had very many of those thus far. We obviously had and then there were none. We had Murder is Easy and we also had the Sidford mystery. But most of the other standalones were thrillers. And otherwise, we've just been doing Poirot and Tommy and Tuppence and one lone marble. So um, I think we're just going to get a bit more variety coming up and I'm excited for it. If you would like to contact us, as always, we would love to hear from you. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Twitter handle is at All About the Dame. Catherine's Twitter handle is at Brobcat. We are on Instagram at All About Agatha. And we so, so, so love and appreciate when people rate and review us and help out the podcast. So please take a moment to do that and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.